Hi Lord und willkommen in Conlangery, der Podcast bei der Artelanguis und der Volkswischefitemt. Welcome to Conlangery, podcast about constructed languages and people who create them. I'm George Corley. Uh, with me across the pond here is Bianca Richards. Hello. And over in the great state of Wisconsin, we have one William Annis. Hello. Ah, so, how is everybody? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just happy I haven't broken my neck today. <laughs> Running for the bus again. No, any movement outside when it's freezing rain is likely to be iffy. Oh, that's true. That was the one thing I disliked was like, because of where my apartment was in New York, to walk to the bus stop to get on the bus to go anywhere close to my classes was the same amount of walking distance, walking to and from the bus stop to the classes as it was actually just straight walking. (laughs) So I was like, great. I get to walk all over this ice and snow and puddles that look like they're two inches deep, but are really five inches deep. And then you step in them and your leg's wet and then you trip and you fall and then your entire body is wet. And then you get hypothermia because you have to sit in class all day. Um, <laughs> thankfully, okay. that didn't happen. Good. Good. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> I just don't Freeze. have my energy Freeze. today. Sorry. Freezing rain is the the worst because basically you get a coat of ice that you can't actually see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did slip down some stairs because of that and twist my ankle, which was annoying. Um. So before we get started, I'm gonna say one thing. Uh, I was telling Bianca and, and William that. Uh, I had actually gotten around to reading a book that I referenced back in the Alien Languages episode where I talked about briefly about Embassy Town. So I actually read that. I'm going to put where I was talking about that after the end music. But basically, short version, the, the main interesting thing about that language is the psycholinguistics, and it's bizarre. Because <laughs> that's what China Meville does. Strange. Yes. Funnily enough, he drops linguistic terms all over the place in that book, as if he's, like, trying to show you that he knows what he's talking about. Oh, no, he just likes words. (laughs) No, really, he does. His other books, he does the same thing. Just lots and lots of words. Really? In a book? No, I mean, like, unusual words. (laughs) Yeah, strange words, words that are not in my... uh, in my right. people, dictionary. People who aren't linguists or language inventors will have never heard the word morphosyntactic before. Yeah. Or like <laughs> even velar. Like or even velar. Yes. Or vocal folds. Who was well, I to- I was talking to my husband about something and it was something about vocal folds and he's like, What is that? That sounds gross. And like it does look gross if you've ever seen them. Um not just vocal cords. They're just vocal cords. Why have we changed the name? Because they're not what? cord-like, they're fold-like, I guess. How on earth does it... That's like the lunate sigma. That's just dumb. <laughs> I think well, in the end, no one cares, as long as you're talking about the same thing. Why change the name if it's just... <laughs> okay, whatever. Oh, well. Well, um, William... They look gross, though. Doing that. But anyway. they might. Well, William, I think, was trying to segue into our topic... When you mentioned morphosyntax, because guess what? We're talking today about morphosyntactic alignment. So morphosyntactic alignment, basically, uh, it's how you arrange your semantic roles, agent, patient, recipient, and that. So, like, you have, there's several basic types of alignment, you know, Everybody should know nominative accusative is like English, like Japanese, where your sub, the subject of the sentence is marked different from everything else. 
not the subject, but the the object is different from everything else, and subject of an intransitive sense, sen, sentence and agent of a transitive sentence um, is marked the same. And then ergative absolutive is the opposite, and you have tripartite, which is subject, agent, and patient are all distinct. But the most interesting things are when they're sort of mixed together. So, Well, see, when you used the phrase opposite before, I was really upset because, first of all, there's three relationships we're talking about, so you can't have an opposite in that situation. Second, when I started doing research for this episode, I went into it all confident in thinking I knew things. <laughs> and now I think linguists have no idea. They simply have no clue. Really? Is my feeling. Because um, the closer you look, the less it all starts to make sense and hold together. Really? That's the beauty of cases in general. They sound like you get the definitions and they make sense, and then you get into the details and you're like, I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. Right. So, so the, the things we're, we're going to uh, – we keep coming back to this three-way distinction that we all know and love. Thank you f- to Bernard Comrie, I think, for coming up with it, which is the agent-like thing – the subject-like thing and the patient or object-like thing. Yes. Um, and how you split those up um, defines these different, these different alignments. The problem is, are we really sure that S, namely subject and agent, are what we think they are? Because especially when we get to things like the split S or fluid S languages, then you're like, oh, they're not the same. <laughs> they have different th- considerations come into play. So, uh, so I've come into this thinking I know – not that I know less. I mean I know if someone's going to talk about a fluid S system, I know what they're talking about. But whether or not it means what we think it means to talk about this and if it's actually a real thing, I, I now have doubts about. But, I mean, we can spend some time going through these in more detail. Well, I guess let's let's go over it. I think my summaries will probably do well for most of our listeners because we've mentioned this stuff before. Yeah. But, you know, we might want to go a little bit through um, uh, what fluid S is and then get into the whole theoretical idea of whether any of this makes any sense or not. Well, we're not going to resolve that issue because we're conlangers. Right? Yes, obviously <laughs> I'm just we can't. hoping to introduce people to some different ideas and, and things they need to think about. Yeah, that I obviously we're not going to ever resolve it. Even if we were uh, professionals, we're not going to resolve it on a podcast. But you can introduce <laughs> some of the complications that people have brought up because I'm interested sure. to hear about that too. Okay. Um. So, George already went over the nominative accusative, which we all know and love. Everyone listening to this podcast is now using a language that uses this, where the subject of a transitive verb and the subject of an intransitive verb are marked the same, and the direct object or the patient. um, I even used the bad language. The patient of a direct object is marked differently. So, that's simple. There is an extremely small number of natural languages that do not mark the accusative. They mark the nominative. So already we have a weirdness. The normal typology is, oh, you have a a simple form that's the nominative and you add something to get to the accusative. Nope. There are a small number of languages that do the opposite. Well, that's – it seems like the the similar occurs on the other side, right? Because – like going back to what ergative is, ergative is not okay. It's not one hundred percent the opposite, but it is instead of the patient getting special marking, it's the um, it's the agent of a transitive sentence that gets special marking, and then right. everything else is the same. Right. And I think generally the the same thing occurs is that almost all of them mark the Ergative argument. I don't know if they do. There are. I thought it was cases the of. opposite. Nope. Oh, mark the ergative. Just kidding. Yes, yeah, yes, you yes, mark, yes. mark, mark the, the absolutive. If you Sorry, mark, I was singing absolutive. Yeah, you mark the ergative because the absolutive <coughs> is everything else. And some people well, call that absolutive the nominative, which is confusing. But anyway. Right. And it's worth mentioning in passing that the ergative 
first of all, ergative absolutive languages occur in about a sixth, one over six of the languages on the planet. And there's an interesting pattern in that the ergative case marking frequently looks the same as some other case, hmm. often a genitive, often a locative or instrumental. That I didn't know. That's yeah, it, it, the ergative system appears to be derived huh. from something. Um, so then we have tripartite languages, which mark agent, patient, and subject differently. Um, in those, it's typically the subject of an intransitive has zero marking, and then you have separate marking for your transitive subject and your transitive direct object. That's very interesting that, that you have the triple distinction there. It's very unusual. I think there are maybe two languages, naturally occurring languages, that have this across the entire language. It's much more likely for this to appear in part of your grammar. So, example, we're going to be talking about Australian languages, and we've picked one that has tripartite marking in the first and second person pronouns. Ah, oh, okay, I see. So, it's a very rare alignment. It's a rare alignment to take over an entire language. It's not that rare in the sense that it might occur in part of your language. And it's, this is not unusual that nouns behave differently than first and second person pronouns. Okay. Um, there is naturally occurring a small number of languages that mark the subject and object of a direct of, of a transitive verb the same and then give a different marking to the intransitive subject. Apparently the Conlangers call this the monster raving loony alignment. Yeah. Um, and when I first heard about this I thought it was fake, but no, there's some language in the Caucasus Mountains that does this. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you just say it when you just mention it. I don't know. It's it's like the transitivity of the verb is being marked on the argument somehow. Yeah, I guess you could say that's what's going on. That's that's the only way that I think it makes any sense, because otherwise it's like... Um, it is a shame we don't have more historical data on this to find out how on earth that developed. Yeah, in, in, in the part uh, where you would... In the, the transitive sentences where I would think you would want to distinguish the two, so the reason for the fact that... The, the both transitive arguments take the same marking is weird to me. <laughs> it is. It is a little weird, and that's why the conlangers call it what they do. Um, then we get into the fluid S or split S languages, and they're nifty in that they are kind of ergative absolutive, except that um, your intransitive verbs that have high agency will be marked your, your subject will be marked one way, and when the verb has low agency, it will be marked um, as an intransitive. So something like walk, because it's purposeful activity, will be marked agentively, and something like trip, because it's not usually on purpose, <laughs> um, will be marked intransitively. Um, and the distinction there is in some languages, it's completely fluid, right? You can change the subject of the transitive verb to encode um, control as you want, or in other languages, it's completely fixed, right? Walk or trip will always be encoded in a particular way. Um, so that's that. And we should also mention that's not the only kind of split you can have. Right. There's a, a couple other very common ones having to do with um, the agency of the subject itself. Right, right. And that dovetails with some stuff we're going to be talking about when we get into the split ergatives as well. Yeah. And then the last of the alignments is a little bit weird. It's the Austronesian alignment. And it's hard for me to even think about this as a normal kind of alignment. There's something else funky going on here. Probably the most accessible and well-documented language that does this is um, Tagalog. Um, back when I was a youngster in the 90s and first appeared on the Conlang mailing list, these were very, very popular, and they got called trigger languages. Um, and the conlangers unfortunately simplified the reality of the situation a little bit more than they needed to. Um, 
these days, people who study these languages are not calling them triggers anymore. They're talking about agent focus or patient focus. So here's what happens. You have a verb stem, which may or may not ever occur by itself. It will take various kinds of marking, such and, and the two most common are agent focus and patient focus. Mm-hmm. So let's imagine that we take agent focus, and in that situation, the agent of the sentence will take a particular case marking that usually gets called direct, the direct case. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are different possibilities for what will happen in your remaining argument to the verb. Uh, typically, you'll have um, things that look like ergatives, things that look like accusatives. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, you should just go look up Austronesian alignment and watch your head explode. Well, and f- to be fair to you, <clears throat> there was someone on the CBB who's sometimes there, not too often anymore, and he speaks Tagalog, and he's like, you know what? I'm reading about it, and I speak it. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> it is awfully complicated. And um, the, the point is that your verb gets marked in a particular way. Are you focusing on the agent? Are you focusing on the patient? Okay. And then you have various kinds of case-marking dances that happen in addition to this marking. With the important point being that there's one case called the direct case that tells that is pointing back to the verb saying, this is the thing that I'm talking about. Um, those are the two most common in addition to um, patient focus and agent focus. You might have instrument focus and locative focus. Okay, so... Tagalog does not have those last two. Okay. Um, but... Other languages will have all four. So, choosing which to focus on, is this all sort of discourse stuff? Absolutely. All of these things that we're talking about today are how you organize information for your listeners. What is salient, what is new. Um, in, in lots of the languages of the Philippines, whether you use patient focus or agent focus, um, has a really strong implication about the definiteness of... The definiteness of your arguments. Okay, so in other words, that basically the um, choosing which, whether it's agent focus or patient focus, sort of can also ha- have an effect on what you're talking about as your discourse focus. And right. basically, well, it seems like this could sort of replace passives and anti-passives and stuff um it is it is it's working on the same sort of principles yes um it used to be they would call these different verb forms active and passive which is a little bit confusing because by that terminology the passive was the most commonly occurring form um but yes absolutely all of this has to do with how you shun stuff around i find the Austronesian alignment still kind of baffling. Um, and it makes me, it gives me comfort to know that a native speaker of such a language also finds it baffling. Yes. Remember, folks, native speakers don't necessarily know stuff about their language. I would still expect a conlanger to be able to meditate yeah, on their own language and think is, about what's going on. But anyway. who is linguistically <laughs> aware, you might expect to have more of an idea what's going on, but, you know... Right. Never trust native speakers. Ever. (laughs) Anyway, so I'm not going to talk much about Austronesian alignment for the rest of this session just because something else is going on there that I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Um, Because we've talked about nominative accusative and ergative absolutive. And in addition to just making this choice, there are implications about discourse. Are you going to have a passive? Are you going to have an anti-passive? Are you going to have an inverse? There are different likelihoods that follow from this. There's not, they're, they're not strict rules, but ergative absolutive languages are much more likely to have an anti-passive. Nominative accusatives are much more likely to have a straight-up passive, but both of them can also have, I mean, all possibilities of mix and match are available. Okay. Um, so, what was I going to say? That's enough. That's, what I, that's, that's that point. Yes. 
the I think we can set aside Austronesian alignment for the people who want to do the research and figure out what exactly it is. And then explain it to me. Yes. <laughs> then make make your conlang with it and make it written such in such a way that you will explain it to us so that we understand it. Thank you. That would be helpful. Um, so the those are the the sort of the basic forms. I would even say fluid S is not really it's sort of a combination of two, but Yeah. Af, as we get more complicated we talk about, well, this is the first thing you have on your list, is to talk about the different kinds of split ergative languages. Right. So purely ergative languages are pretty rare. I think Basque is one. Is that right, Bianca? Potentially. I don't know as much about it as I'd like. Yeah, no, but I think... But it has a bunch of other cases, so I don't see it being as, you know, willing well, to mess around with it. Well, from what I understand, the the alignment is totally ergative, though. Okay. I don't know if the I don't know. And, and I don't that, remember reading anything that said anything else. So somebody yeah, can correct us, conlangeatgmail.com. But anyway. <laughs> um, if you understand Basque and understand its grammar, good job. <laughs> <laughs> so, much more likely than a pure ergative language is split ergative, which means you get nominative, accusative, or something in some situations, and you get ergative, absolutive, and other circumstances. Where the split happens is quite variable. It can happen by animacy, and it's most common for first and second person pronouns to take nominative, accusative alignment, and everything else, ergative, absolutive. Mm -hmm. It might split by tense, and in this circumstance, it is almost always a non-present, non-future um, and non-irrealis forms, so usually the past, past-like things, end up being the ergative. Or it might split by aspect, and again, it's almost always the perfective that ends up being the ergative. Um, for the first one, I would recommend, if you have describing morphosyntax, there is a section that talks about uh, where split ergatives he talks about it on an agency hierarchy, which is sure. pretty much the same thing as an amnesty hierarchy. And he talks about, and he has basically a, the continuum of it, first person pronouns, second person pronouns, third person pronouns, and all that. And basically, when you see that continuum, basically stuff that is more toward the 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 front the um, the start of the continuum is more likely to gain the ergative. You can split it in different places, but it's usually just first first person second person pronouns that. Those that you mean nominative, nominative accusative. accusative? That will get nominative accusative, and everything right. else gets ergative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I probably actually should have said um, agency rather than animacy. There, I misspoke. Yeah, it is. Um, um, though animacy figures into it. Right, right. Um, uh, I was going to say something else. Right, as we've mentioned, sometimes you might get split ergative, but instead of nominative accusative, you might get ergative split on tripartite. Um, That sort of stuff. So there's multiple possibilities for mix and match there that occur in natural languages. And I've got a link to a, a document that was for somebody giving a talk. It's a handout, but it gives lots of possibilities of these. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll include that. Yes. We'll include yes. that in the notes and it will look good. Um, it's really important to note that you might have an ergative system in one part of your language and nominative accusative in another part of your language that has nothing to do with nouns. Your verb system might be pure nominative accusative while everything else takes ergative. Yes. Basically, in terms of... You're talking mainly about agreement here, right? Right. That's what I mean, yeah. Um, so, a lot of times, actually, the, the the sort of in that continuum, verb agreement comes even before any pronouns. So, it's basically, you could have... Um, it's possible to have verbs agree ergatively, I guess but it's much more common to, for them to just agree with whatever the subject is, whether they're transitive or intransitive, if they have agreement. Right. 
Um, is there anything else about that subject in particular we need to cover? Oh, I don't know. So according to this handout, having accusative case marking but ergative verb agreement does not occur or is unseen by people as of 2006. That's the weird thing about this. This this is true of that. This is true of the 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 whole agency thing, and it's true of the tense and aspect things. Is for some reason these splits often only occur one in one direction, yeah. where nominative accusative always ends up on one side, and ergative always on the other side. For I don't. It's it's interesting. That's that. Trying to figure out why that happens delves into theory, which is outside the purview of this <laughs> yes, podcast. It really does. But it really does. <laughs> um, I guess, you know, if you want to make a conlang for aliens, you could reverse one of those and see if it makes any sense at all to you. <laughs> and then there's the other question of, um, are your participles ergative or not? Yeah. There's always... That's another thing is people always talk about Ergative languages will have trace nominativity, and denominative languages will have trace ergativity in right. certain places. Like the the English suffix e is often cited as sort of an ergative thing because it can mark someone who does a verb that's usually intransitive, or it can be mark the recipient of a verb that's usually transitive. It's oh, a weird right. thing. I don't know if that's exactly true, but like like absentee or um or causey. Yeah. You have right, to so go into be absent of, is an intransitive. Yeah. So absentee and then somebody to whom something is caused is a causey. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> you have all sorts of weird mixes and matches are theoretically possible. Yeah, it the, but that's sort of like an edge case in English. There, yes. Um, so, and it's not even native to English, right? We stole that from the French. Yeah, it's a, a lot of those things will be sort of edge cases when where there's traces of it. So, I don't know if most conlangers will even get to that level of complexity, honestly, because it's going to be like sort of in this little corner. You have one little tangent where it's ergative. Yeah, you know, studying this, so there's a a rule in the game of Go that when you start studying certain kinds of patterns, you actually become a less good player for a while. (laughs) And now, having spent part of the week reading sort of irregularly about morphosyntactic alignment, I'm afraid to invent any new language. Because I'm going to get to the verbs, and I will not be able to do anything. (laughs) Yeah, I it just, gets a little I'll be overwhelmed by possibilities. It gets a little wacky when you start which, you know, that's why I played with a fluid S system with um Iruyo and I thought I was going to do more ergative stuff and stuff, but now I think maybe the next languages that I work on I'm just gonna make nominative accusative. Which is, after all, by far an overwhelming majority of the time the most common pattern. Yeah. It, I don't know wh- whether I'll do it or not, but I might. And yeah, there's nothing wrong with just going nominative accusative and making your language strange and interesting in other ways. It's just yes. that <laughs> we're kind of probably going to talk more about that. We're talking more about the the ergative systems and the tripartite systems and all that in this episode because that's the whole topic. So Right, because it's and most likely to be unseen by especially beginning conlangers. Um, one weird thing about all this talk about alignment is it's really, really, really centrally focused around transitive verbs and intransitive verbs and the what we consider the core arguments of those. Mm-hmm. But lots and lots of languages have things like datives. <laughs> Where does the dative fit into all of these patterns? Does it exist at all? Right, because some languages mark your direct object and indirect object with the same case marking. And then you have things like Russian and, and various other languages that have dative experiencer subjects, which is the idea that Okuna ran with and went completely bonkers with. Yeah, it's, it's Or you might mark the direct object with other cases. 
um, to indicate other subtleties like Finnish does this as so does Dothraki. Yeah. It's very... It's it's a lot of stuff, and I wanted to bring up also, a lot of people bring up this idea of dative versus desiderative, which... Desiderative? See, I'm not... Well, if that's... Is that the right... Do you mean benefactive? See, I don't know. You you wrote down where the same thing that I wrote down, but um, yeah. the, uh, or I, what I understood was that according to some people, there's sort of a parallel typology alignment where some people will use a dative to mark the indirect object, the recipient of, of the action. Whereas others will, use a desiderative marker on, um, and I'm not sure what the good term for this is, the theme or the, the, like, if I say I gave the ball to Bill, some people mark Bill specially, some people mark the ball specially. Mm-hmm. And this is supposedly parallel with uh, the the accusative and ergative uh, oh. scale. You're going to have to find a paper on that, because that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure, but when you bring in things like um, Okuna and with stuff like um, the various various different um, cases, like um, you know Russian and Finnish, those examples where you have dative experiencers or you have the different cases for the patient, that seems to break that idea a little bit to me. So I'm not sure. Break what idea? The dative versus desiderative thing oh. I was talking about. Because if you end up using your dative for core arguments as well, well, what is it exactly a dative in the the sense that we're talking about? Which is the big problem, a big problem with cases anyway. They 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 mean yeah. what they conventionally they mean, mean different things in different languages. Yes. So, I don't know. I managed not- to get away with the. Ergative absolutive language with basically a German case system. <laughs> it works fine. Yeah, it's probably, frankly, it's all possible. This is not my most coherent episode I've ever been on, I think. But anyway. Yes, we're, we're, we're kind of flailing around. Why don't we, why don't you talk a little bit about this bluebird of ergativity that you Oh, it's just – people can read it. It's a funny paper, and the whole point is the guy is saying, okay, if you want to classify verbs or, or – no, let's start. You want to classify birds, you might say things like they're terrestrial, they fly, there are some birds that swim, and these are all useful things to say. But to say – to, to organize your birds by their feather color is not very useful. So he's thinking that in his – the bluebird of ergativity is that ergativity is – means we're thinking about the problem wrong. Hmm. And that we had all these people who were speaking Western European languages suddenly started looking at other languages and like, oh, this isn't normal. We can't, it's not a subject. The, the idea of subject has dissolved. Therefore, we have to invent a new thing, which we're going to call the ergative. Okay. Um, so he, this paper is just a long thing of him raising questions about this with lots of really interesting and to-the-point examples about why he thinks something more is going on here than what we think is going on. Um, okay. And and just the subject is funny. Well, since um, it gets into such a, a high-minded theoretical discussion, why don't we kind of... Um, we're not going to be able to, like, really... No, no, no. You should go read the paper on your own. I'm not yeah, going to... We don't need to discuss read this. On paper. the other hand... You know, I think just because we're kind of lost in the sea of morphosyntactic alignment, I don't think that, you know, some of our newer Conlangian listeners should be intimidated by these. Maybe the Austronesian thing. But, you know, ergative absolutive is pretty easy to do. It sounds confusing. Yes. And it's really not. It's not. Just start no, with a no, straight no. erg absolutive or ergabs as I like to call it. And, you know, then you can work on the split system. But it's really easy. Just mess with it. You'll be like, why did I think this was hard? Yeah. Don't be intimidated. Um, getting these morphosyntactic alignments figured out, at least I know with 
ergative absolutive and later building a fluid S system, it really helps to actually make a language that does it and then run test sentences to figure out how exactly all this stuff works. And then you, it, it'll start to make sense. Yes. It's kind of one of those do first, think about it later ones where yeah. it kind of works out better that way. And if you don't want to make your primary language do that without understanding it a little bit first, make a little text test language. Put like a really small Hawaiian phonology in there and, and just make up a bunch of random words and run test sentences with an ergative system. Yep. You don't have to do anything fancy. Just have, say, have, have it have an ergative marker and say, okay, this sentence translates this way because of this. And don't think, oh, Ergab's language, I'm going to look at Basque. Let's do something like that. Don't do that. Don't. <laughs> I tried it. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> You'll spend uh, the rest of your life just inventing a gigantic verb chart if you go that way. So Basque is a little bit more complicated than just the fact that yeah. it's Um. So why don't we like leave people to read that paper and also yeah. to sort of go a little more in-depth on their own. And we'll go and talk about our featured Natlang this time. We're doing another natural language, and this one is called Ngarla, or uh, Ngarla. That's a reflex. Ngarla. Ngarla. Yeah. Ngarla. Mm. As, Why did we as, pick as, this again? As much as I like to say um, the things in the, the natively, I'm just going to call this Nyarla. Okay. This language has angmas and like the nya sound all over the place. Well, okay. So this is Nala. This is a Australian language with maybe five speakers left or five speakers left at the point of this document being written, which was 2007. Mm-hmm. Um we have a link to it. It's a grammatical sketch that is produced by analyzing sentences taken from a dictionary. Oh, okay. Right, because there are so few <laughs> speakers left, and the person who wrote this um, is in Uppsala. I have to say, why my is it God, another Swedish person? <laughs> okay, what were you saying, Sorry. Bianca? What were you saying again, Bianca? I said, why is it another Swedish person? Oh. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at the phonology, and my God, there's a lot of nasals. There's nasals at every point of articulation. Yep. That's, again, and there are... standard, very... St- okay, so what page are you looking at? Because this is someone's thesis. Page 12 so, is where right, so, you get the first um, consonant chart, and you get four different... Coronals distinctions. Mm-hmm. Coronals. Not what? coronals. They're coronals. I'm pretty sure my linguistics teacher said coronal. but I thought uh, your linguistics teacher said bats were insects. Well, that's true. But <laughs> 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 and he was Belgian. But anyway. Okay, in fair enough, my dictionary has both of them. But I've always heard coronal rather than coronal. Because that sounds like, you know... The corona of the sun. Okay, or, well, you know, let's, let's, let's get... The beer. I was just making this observation. I guess... <laughs> William, you've said this is very, very common for uh, Australian languages to have... What, this yes, says, multiple, multiple coronals way yeah. at the front. All sorts of things going on there. Um, we're lucky, or I'm lucky, in that Nala has removed the laminal series. Yay! Oh... Okay. Or laminodental went away. It still has laminopalatal. No, it has laminodental. No, the chart you're looking at is this is the standard in Australian languages. So he's giving theoretical background, oh, and then later he gives the actual. Um, oh, Nala, I see. Nala, so, the actual Nala inventory is on page twenty-three. Oh, I'm sorry. I was looking at the wrong thing. No, that's fine. Oh, okay. They've they've removed the. Okay, so they don't have the head tall. Yes, that is that is much easier when you don't have to distinguish dental and alveolar. But they still have the retroflex that um, Bianca loves so much. Um, It has a whole retroflex series. It does. It's it's also lost the voice stops. 
Well, it didn't never had them. Yeah. So he, it is normal in the writing of Australian languages to for your stops to be written as though they were voiced, even though they're not. This is because English people who could not hear the difference between an aspirated and an unaspirated consonant were the first people to describe these languages. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Um, so most of these languages do not, in fact, have a voiced voiceless distinction, but they're just written as though they're voiced. Okay. Now... In this particular language, it looks like they're being kind to us and not doing that, um, except for the J, which is a palatal... All right. Stop, but anyway. Um, so, like I said, this language description is coming from the analysis of sentences from a dictionary. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of today's topic, it's relevant in that this language is ergative-absolutive on nouns and demonstratives, but it is tripartite on first and second person pronouns. Tripartite on pronouns. Yes. Now that's interesting. This happens from time to time in Australia as well. It's not that unusual. Uh, in well, Australia. In Australia. In Australia, this is quite common. Well, I don't well, know. If it's very common, but well, if, if what's common in Australia is often pretty bizarre everywhere else. So. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, yeah, it's more common for the pronoun first and second person pronouns to simply be nominative accusative. Yeah. But this is one of the set that went tripartite. Although this document does not use the phrase tripartite as far as I'm able to tell, but that's what it's describing. Okay. Um so is there anything else complicated about the morphosyntax that um the is it just is that as simple as it is or is there any more complex stuff that goes on there. Um, there may well be from the state of the documentation we have. Probably it's going to be hard to tease that out. Okay. Um, one of the really interesting features of the language that has nothing to do with alignment is that there are very few root verbs. Really? Most verbs are produced by using some sort of noun and then a verbalizer. Okay. Yeah. That's of which there are 17 whose meaning is not clear. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, it d- I didn't even notice there were multiple ones because I was reading through the example sentences and I just saw verbalizer and now I'm just looking and there are different ones. I thought it was just the one. Nope. That's confusing. It is a little. Well, I. And and one expects that that with a little more research you could go into the history. I'm I'm guessing we'll see lots of puts and sends and takes and gives, very yeah. basic meanings. Uh, All um, those happy fun verbs. Yeah, that that are used for things like this. Um, one thing I I find interesting is, let's see, what is this? Um, there's a bunch of what is this provenience? So there's a bunch of stem-forming subfixes. Mm-hmm. And they have dual and plural and plenty of uh, and a committative, a privative, and a provenience. I'm trying to think of what a provenience would be necessarily. That's probably it, mean, it, it, provenience, it means where you're from or where you oh, live. Okay, It indicates your customary dwelling place. Okay. Um... He gives examples on page 42. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. It is really annoying to me that all of the pronouns start with an enigma. <laughs> well, no, no, my mistake. The second person seems to start with nya. Yes. And the third person not. But the first person is all enigma. Which, which you will hate large swaths of Australia because that route is fairly consistent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So those are kind of stem-forming things. I like the case system um, because they have a really interesting case. So in this language, the ergative and the instrumental look alike. Mm -hmm. But there's a special case for obscured perception. That's interesting. Right, and you know, is 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 kind of nifty. What's great is the meaning has extended slightly so that you can see, you know, what's that thing hidden under the leaf, right? So there it's obscured. 
Um, but it can also indicate that something is overwhelmed by something. Oh, okay. So you can say that you're n- obscured by nervousness, which is to say that you're, you're overcome by nervousness. Or you can talk about how you're weak from sickness. Um, so you, you actually read this thing. I'm just like hopping on little things. Like I'm like, I like the fact that it has a first-person dual-inclusive noun pronoun. pronouns. Yes. It has a lot of... So it's like you and me. Uh, what do I call them? Suffixes. That's yes. the dumb way yeah, of putting it. But um, it reminds me a lot of my dead language now. Very, very uh, synthetic. Uh, agglutinating. See, I was... Uh, agglutinating. Yeah. Sorry. Not quite. I was reading about the possessive, and I'm wondering... It says it has it for inalienable possession, but I wonder what it uses for alienable possession. How that would distinguish? Uh, there's probably a difference there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there is, but it doesn't offer you the alternative, so... So I appreciate having a nice long description of this language for free, but the formatting could leave leaves a little to be desired, to be honest, sometimes. That's one way of putting it, yes. It yes. does not look like it's... <laughs> I think my most favorite thing is that when you come across these things, is that every once in a while there's a nice little gloss, and then it'll just have a question mark, and it's like, what is this? (laughs) We don't know. We know it's there, but we don't know why. (laughs) Well, what's often happening is you're having some root combined with a verbalizer, and you know what those mean together, but you don't know what the noun actually means. Yeah. Uh, Okay. That's, that's, yeah, I see there we have... uh, he doesn't know what chupinya uh, means. Right. Um, or chupinya. It has a, a somewhat elaborated tense system. Um, you have um, distinctions in past of immediate and remote. Uh-huh. They have something extremely annoying that he's calling a general aspect marker, but I have no idea what that means. What is a general aspect? Uh-huh. Um, it looks like it has an asseverative here he marks it as meaning undoubtedly you know for making very firm assertions about things that are true which is neat uh-huh. uh, what else the, those, not, those verbalizers are interesting in the sense that some of them I mean you can do different transitivity things so it, it might be interesting for people who care about the transitivity of how they develop their vocabulary and, uh, to look at that a little bit more uh-huh. there's some neat, neat issues there it has a small vocabulary associated with it, which is also worthwhile looking at. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, looking at vocabulary for a, a real natlang is always a good idea if you want to avoid doing um, relaxes. Yes. I think I suggested this in a previous episode, but a fun way of doing this is going to Wiktionary and looking at the translations they have. That way, yeah. you know, you can see, like, you look up. What's a good word to look up? But, like, you I don't look know, at... but you can look up one word and get a bunch of different definitions, and then you can look at those and see how the semantic mush overlaps. Right. Yeah, but Wiktionary's not going to have this language in it. So No, but... Uh, this is, it's a good idea. Like, um... You can get at least ten other ones... You can get some interesting ideas for words that you wouldn't pick up that way, though, because, like, um, there's a word, katni, uh, uh, or however, um, that's an item that is sticking up. Uh, yeah, that's useful, a thing, a thing in the environment that's sticking up. To enter, go inside, go underneath are all one in, in this language. That's That's something you could steal from there. Uh-huh. Uh, there's, um... Oh, there's a word for someone's, like, death name, basically. Right. Uh, so, you know, you can always throw... throw some of those things. Oh, oh what, a, what a nice adverb. Running away secretly. <laughs> I'm just gonna read this definition, because it's very long, but it's... Uh, a man's term of reference for a married couple who, from the speaker's point of view, are 
Yankankara in a in Yankankara relationship that is two generations apart. And the woman is the speaker's real father's sister, but the man is not his real mother's brother, but merely classified a classified sister's son. That's on the end of page 65 and going on to page 66. <laughs> well, this is typical of the very complex um, uh, kinship systems, and then we have the interactions of the skin systems of Australia. Yeah, you could figure out what exactly that means. Yeah, it's not, not obvious to me <laughs> without thinking about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Takes a little... Um, but anyway, there's a lot of information in a fairly small space, actually. This is yeah, not- no, this is, this is a really nice, tight, quick description. It's going to miss some things that are important because of its size, but it's so hard to find um, yeah. good grammars of Australian languages online. So I, it's really nice to have this one here. It's 72 pages all told. So if you're interested in some interesting, some some odd Australian weirdness and you you want to look at a language like that, uh, come to our show notes. We'll have the link to it. Yeah, except or, that, of course, everything about this is completely typical for languages of Australia. Um, well, in terms of the, the rest of our topic, it will be most interesting to look at this in terms of um, to see a split ergative system in action. Uh huh. Because yes. there are plenty of examples that are well glossed, even if the glossing doesn't always line up. So, I mean, you can you can really stare at that and get a feel for how those work. Uh, William, you say yes. It's completely typical for an Australian language, but I don't know much about Australian languages, so this is all new stuff to me. Okay. So, um, yeah, definitely look at this for some ideas, especially if you want to run into doing a split iterative system, or if you want to incorporate any other of the sort of things that this language has. Um, give you you a little bit of Australian flavor if you want, or even just pick and choose different things and not necessarily make it um, as Australian as this language is. If as obviously that. Australian. Yeah. yeah. You know, you don't, you don't... I don't think I would want to put three coronal distinctions in, in a language. <laughs> yeah, a wind tunnel. And yeah. And um, definitely not um, all the nasals, but really? uh, why not? <laughs> I don't know. Some people will like it. I'm not. I'm not necessarily into that idea. But see, I've always tried to add the velar nasal to my languages, but then I never put it in any words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have this aversion to getting a perfectly symmetrical consonant chart that looks like um, Devanagari. <laughs> so I sometimes put gaps in places, and for a long, long time, I've avoided having a nasal for every column, but I'm someday soon, sooner than later, I'm going to have all of them. <laughs> uh, that works. So, and it gives you a lot of background stuff on... The all the whole sprachbund of Australian languages. So. It's good for that too. It's good for that too. It it, it gives some charts of of uh, related and similar languages that yeah. can give you even more ideas than this than just this language. Grammar does. Yeah. Um. So I think we can sort of move on from that. That's pretty much give people an idea, and then you can go and look at this grammar and get a good. Some good stuff out of it. Um, what uh, do we want to move on to feedback? Sure. Yeah. So we got an email. I'm not going to read this email because it's, it's long. Multiple paragraphs, but it came from a guy. Let me get the guy's name here. Uh, Bryn Lafollette is the guy's name, and. He basically, uh, he says he came across our podcast in iTunes. I'm, I'm very happy that people are um, 
accidentally discovering our podcast. Yeah, that's, that's a good thing, that people are discovering it through iTunes um, or through any any means that isn't directly from the, the boards. Not, not that we don't like you guys at the boards. It's just we like having a broad audience here. Um, we want vast hordes of adoring fans. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to go that far. We're, we're going to get that. But as long as we can get people from multiple communities and from outside the community, that's, that's a good thing. Um, Tiny hordes of adoring fans? Sure. Uh, can three people be called a horde? Uh, I don't think so. Um, so, he says, though, he makes two sort of requests slash uh, points. points. Yeah, about our thing. He said that we don't do a whole lot of phonology, and... Um, you know, he points out a few things like sonority scale and some other um, things that you can you could talk about in phonology that actually can be interesting. I'm probably more interested in phonology than like William is, but you know, yeah, it's it sort of reflects what all of us have are interested in, and none of us has really been into the phonology. As much. Yeah, I've done quite a bit with phonology when I was in university, but it. Why am I in a wind tunnel? Hello? You're not in a wind, yeah. a wind tunnel on my end. All right. Your end is the end that matters. All right. So, I don't know. It just doesn't feel like. You can go through the whole thing of the sonority scale and whatever else you want, but. In the end, it's just going to end up being your phonology, and that's not that interesting at the end, at least in my opinion. I think we should probably do episodes on phonotactics, not just building your phonology inventory. I think most of our listeners have gotten the gist of that from the various episodes and probably from their own tinkering but a little bit of talk about phonotactics and how you can mix up phonotactics to be interesting might be uh, a good idea to do. I think so. I think so. I mean, I, I will confess that phonetics and phonology are probably my weakest area, just because they don't excite me as much as, as other things, um, which, among other things, means that I avoid really complex syllable structures just because I'm not used to thinking about them, so... Frankly, spending a little time on things like syllables and the sonority hierarchy might be good for future languages. Yeah. True. I, I mean, we could talk a little... We could do some talk about building your... Um, building a phonology, but in order to make really, you know, phonologies that pop at some people, you know, there's a few different techniques you can do with leaving interesting holes or... You know, you can always, like, throw in clicks and stuff, but... Don't ever just throw in clicks. If you're like, I need people to be interested, let's put some clicks in. You've added them for the wrong reason. Well, I was I was saying that you can throw in clicks and stuff, but it's sort of... It's more what you want your language to sound like than what what you want to throw in there, so... Yeah, don't just throw in clicks if there's no other reason for it. But if you want to have clicks, if you like the way the, the click sound, or you like the way adjectives sound. Or you've decided that you need to complete the language from alienation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then you can do that stuff. Um, that's inside reference there. Anyway, um, and he said another thing was... Historical, historical linguists and language change are of strong interest to him. So, and he says, you know, he actually mentions that there are, you know, some things that you can do that don't require you to straight up build the proto-language and derive from it. You know, you can go backwards or you can do some some odd things, or um, he mentions putting in um, strata 
Yes. Which you can do that, but it's it's depends on if you're building a con world around your uh, con lang. I think that's where strata come in because if you want to build multiple languages, then you can do like one language ended up being a substrata for another one and stuff. It's but it's sort of if you're just building one language. I don't know if you really want to deal with the whole idea of strata and building, basically building skeletons of other languages to build your one language. Right. I agree with that. It's sort of, it's, it's, it ends up being a little bit of a con-worldly project when you go there. Um, which is not a bad thing. But yeah. anyway, I'll put that whole email in the show notes, as I usually do, and people can he, read it. But He threatens to send more comments on other episodes as he gets to them, so that could be interesting. I also appreciate that he ended his email with a declaration that Carthage must be destroyed. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that's that's, that's Which a little... The Romans awkward. already took care of. Yes. There is no Carthage. Okay, so we can wrap this episode up. Um, William, do you have any final words of wisdom? Not really. Uh, Bianca. Damn it, I had something and I forgot once again. Okay. Well. You should add it to the show notes. <laughs> well, it's oh. usually I'll have it like a couple hours before and I'm just like, yeah, I'll do that. I'll remember it. And then it's just like, oh no, I'm going to go have some juice now. I come back <laughs> to the computer, do something else. When you think of it, write it down. Too much pre-planning. <laughs> I'm just going to complain my way through my wisdom. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to say happy Conlangery. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. Comments, questions, and suggestions can be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and maybe leave us a five-star review while you're at it. You can also like us at facebook.com slash conlangery, follow us on Twitter at conlangery, or circle us on Google Plus by searching for Conlangery Podcast. Our theme music was created by the band Noel Device. I started um, reading uh, Embassy Town finally. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, it's weird. Have you read anything else by China Miaville? No. Oh. Oh, yeah. He's pretty weird. So, here's the deal. Um, he seems to at least know somewhat where he's coming from there seem to be some little inconsistencies basically the whole thing about the uh, the um, the language that is spoken by these creatures the arike or the hosts they're called the language itself the only thing remarkable about the language itself is the fact that the arike have two independent production systems that work simultaneously. So, basically, they have two mouths that have to talk at once. Mm-hmm. But everything else about it is all the psycholinguistics of the hosts, because it's... Humans can learn their language, and they... When humans learn it, well, it takes some, some uh, effort for humans to speak it, they have to breed that that you have to have two people speaking basically. Mm-hmm. And there's there's more that goes into that, but that goes into the psycholinguistics a little bit. But humans can when when you have two people speaking at the same time here so that you get both sides of it. 
basically humans can do deal with it just like a normal language. But for some reason, there's all these little things about the Arike that that are bizarre. So they are the their language is innate. Basically, once they reach adulthood, they are fluent in the language, and all of them speak the same language. The uh, second thing is it's extremely strong. It has extremely strong warfian effect to the fact that they cannot lie. They have to say things that they know to be true. Oh, except, God, I hate that so much. Yeah, except weirdly they can ask questions, at least. Um, and it's the, the weirdest thing of it, and you find this out very early on in the book, they do use figures of speech, like m- metaphors and such, but they they have to be literalized at some sense. So the main character at one point becomes what's called a simile, and basically she has to act out the what what they would be referring to. Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> basically, she becomes the girl who, in pain, ate what was given to her, and basically, it's implied that she was kind of beaten up, and then made they they made her eat something. It's weird. Well, Pennyville <laughs> is all about weird. He's all about weird. I mean, Perdido Street Station is the thing that sort of yeah. was his splash onto the scene, and it's pretty darn strange. The weirdest thing, the one thing that is absolutely inexplicable to me is that somehow the hosts are able to detect whether there is a mind behind the speech, so they they completely ignore recordings. Right. Which makes no sense to me. Well, and, whatever. Yeah. It's, it's weird stuff. <laughs> you should read it. I'll get to it eventually. <laughs> I have a lot of reading to do, so... 